Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Endurance Innovation. Today is our second episode on going faster on the bike. So we're going to dive into some of the details about uh, different equipment selection that you can make. And I would say most of this doesn't really cost you any extra money. It's just a question of making the right choice when you're first choosing your equipment. So it's... uh, Quite a great topic, I think, we've got. Um, hopefully, there's lots of interesting questions that come out of it and lots of interesting answers. But uh, we'd be very keen to hear feedback on what we, what information we provide and what you think of our analysis. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, we did part one where we talked about uh, wheels, helmets, frames, and the integration into those frames, especially the newer uh, versions of all of your storage and hydration needs. So today on the roster, we're going to look at race apparel, shoes, bike fit, and specifically, we're going to spend some time on saddles. Absolutely. And I think this ties in nicely with some of our previous interviews as well, especially relating to the, the bike fit and saddle component. Um, but why don't we start off discussing race suits? Because I think we can agree that uh, no one wants to race naked or no one should race naked. Um, so. <laughs> well, no one's allowed to race naked, right? Yeah, they will. They'll, uh, they're pretty strict with, uh, with apparel guidelines, the both ITU rules and uh, uh, Ironman triathlon. So racing naked is not an option. Fair statement. Yep. So I think uh, I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> so you need to make a selection of some kind of race suit. Um, so I've seen everything from people riding in t-shirts and shorts to uh, full-on speed suits that are custom tailored for people. And obviously it depends on what kind of race you're attempting to do and what kind of requirements you have for that race uh, in terms of comfort, in terms of sun protection, aerodynamics, everything along those lines. Yeah, so Andrew and I identified uh, three broad categories in assessing whether or not a piece of equipment is going to make you go faster. The first is, does it offer a technological advantage? So does it reduce drag or rolling resistance? Does it keep you cool? Does it allow you to produce more power? Does it give you a psychological advantage? You know, does wearing it or does uh, riding on it make you feel like you're, you're a stronger, better athlete? And does it give you any tactical advantage um, as far as being able to improve your uh, race performance by managing the race better? So with those three broad categories in mind, this is how we're going to assess the topics we're going to cover today. And as we mentioned, race suits are going to be the first one. So why don't we start off with probably one of our favorite areas, but aerodynamics. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of exposed skin or, well, a lot of skin that could otherwise be exposed if it weren't for the race suit. But uh, you've got a lot of surface area that could be contributing to drag there. So what makes a suit fast? Well, I can tell you what makes a suit slow, and that would be wrinkles or a bad fit. So if you, so this is a what not to do, yes, right, Andrew? That's right, yeah. So, and it can be turned around into what to do. But um, I've seen a number of race suits, and I've even seen some people who've purchased like the um, the super cheap Chinese Amazon race suits, where they're not tailored properly and they don't have the proper fit, and they end up just flopping in different areas. So the uh, the general advice I have is any kind of 
um, loose material that's allowed to flap in the wind or luff in the wind is is going to be slow. Flags, as a general example, they provide a lot of uh, air resistance or a lot of drag. So that that flapping is very inefficient. So anytime you have that happen on your suit, um, it's basically just like pushing a, or putting a parachute out behind you. And this is what I imagine you meant, Andrew, when you said that some of these things that we're going to talk about today aren't necessarily more expensive. They're just they just have to be done right. So this is the the kit's the prime example. You have to wear a kit. Those are the rules, and those are the kind of the rules of decency as well. But uh, it all it, then it makes sense for that kit to be fitted properly in order to maximize aerodynamics. Yeah, and one challenge I think people have right now is just buying things online is getting the proper fit is a challenge. Um, so if any companies offer either measurements that you can compare against, or they offer samples that you can try on before purchasing like a custom printed kit, um, I would definitely recommend that because that, that will be probably the cheapest and easiest way to make yourself faster with regards to the, the, the race suit. Um, because if it doesn't fit properly, even if it's the most high tech material, um, that's fast on other people, it's not going to be fast on you if it's flapping around. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, and Andrew mentioned this a couple of times now, but there are a variety of patterns as there are a variety of uh, body shapes and proportions. And um, getting a well-fitting kit is super important. And it, the only way you can really make sure that that's what you're getting is to try it on, unless you've already tried on or own the exact same model from the exact same manufacturer, which even then is a little bit dodgy because sometimes year over year they change fit a little bit, but uh, that's a reasonably safe bet. So the the next thing, assuming you've got a good fit, uh, the next thing I would actually recommend looking at is whether you go with a sleeveless or long sleeve suit, because like it's it's actually becoming a lot more common to have these long sleeve suits. And it's something that I prefer wearing, but not everyone does. So my my position on this is um, there's actually been a fair amount of skin cancer in my family. So for me, it's more a question of sun protection than anything else because I don't want to get a burn because I'm genetically predisposed to uh, to being sensitive to that. Um, but that that's my primary reason for the choice I make. However, I have seen a lot of evidence too that a properly fitting uh, long sleeve. A jersey or long sleeve um, skin suit will be faster. But um, again, there's another big caveat there. You've got to make sure that it's fit properly. Um, and the fit, like you can have it tailored properly, but even if you have wrinkles because you've just gotten out of the water and you're using your shoulders in a way that, you know, the bike kit wasn't really designed for. Um, so it gets all wrinkled up by, by your shoulders and that actually can disturb the airflow over your back and create... Um, a lot more drag than it should nominally have. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Andrew. So one of the things that uh, folks who wear long sleeve or sleeved of any description kits ought to do is once they lose the wetsuit is, is give your arms a little bit of a yank down to try to smooth out some of those wrinkles. I also prefer racing in a sleeved suit. I do like the sun protection that uh, that Andrew mentioned. Um, I also think they uh, they look a little bit better. So for me, it's a, it's a, it's almost a, like a psychological advantage too, because I think it looks like a, a more complete piece of kit. It's kind of a funny point to make, but the the one thing that I do find really annoying is that when you have your race numbers written on your arm and you try to pull a long sleeve over that, it just makes a mess. Um, so you get this, especially with sunscreen because it's a solvent, um, it will dissolve any permanent marker ink and then it will just spread it nicely all over your nice clean race suit. 
but really comparing that to getting a sunburn, I think I'd rather have the long sleeves and deal with a, a little bit of ink than having a bright red scar on, on the back. <laughs> Yeah, I've had, uh, uh, let's say, discussions with uh, body markers on race day, asking them to put <laughs> numbers on my forearms rather than my rather than my upper arms. Like, no, that's where they have to go. But like, I'm going to cover it with a suit. Then what's the point of having it up there? So uh, forearms, I think, is the is the new uh, is the new upper mm-hmm. arms for race marking. Uh, plus, you know, not an inexpensive necessarily solution, but race tats, that's the brand name that I know of, but there's a, lots of different folks that'll make numbers that are temporary tattoos that stay on really well, um, that, uh, solve the problem of, uh, of mucking up your expensive custom suit. They're a little bit of a pain to get off, but uh, I think it's it's worth the hassle. Plus, you then you get the race number sunburn afterwards, which is pretty cool because then you... I was going to say... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan. You know, you, you get, you know, you've got, uh, you've got numbers on your forearm for the next week or so. Yeah, it's kind of like showing off like, hey, I did this race. This is my number. So good, a good icebreaker. <laughs> It's like subtly showing off, right? Like if yeah. you show up at a, show up to a, a a party with permanent marker stains on your arm, that's one thing. But like if you have a little bit of a tattoo there, people are going to ask questions. I thought you were going to say if you show up to a party wearing your tri suit, but uh... well, then no, no, then you don't deserve to have friends. <laughs> no, <laughs> unless those friends are other triathletes. <laughs> yes, unless that unless that party is all about training. Um, okay. <laughs> comfort's the next is <laughs> off topic. Yeah, totally. Uh, comfort's the next topic that we want to talk about and comfort is king. We mentioned it a few times. We spoke with Daniel Shade of, uh, Jabiamized, uh, about how comfort is comfort means fast. This goes double in uh, race suits because this is a piece of equipment that's going to be next to skin for as long as your race lasts. I believe the most important component of the race suit and from a comfort perspective is the pad, the chamois that's built into the shorts or in the or in shorts themselves if you're rocking a two-piece. And my experience with these is that there is really no one piece of advice that I can I can give to folks other than to try out different things until you find something that works. I would say usually you get what you pay for. If you go with a a well-respected brand or a popular style, then you'll probably be better off with something that's just foam. But uh, again, it's very personal, um, both in where it's placed and and your preferences. But um, it's it's something that can either make or break a long ride because if you're uncomfortable, if you're starting to blister up, um, that could be a DNF right there. So that will make you much slower. <laughs> Yeah, and then obviously overall comfort of fit. And the the other thing I'll say about comfort is in long sleeve uh, tri suits, there are some that are better than others in terms of shoulder mobility for swimming. So um, I've had a couple of suits, and I know I know my latest suit, which is a happens to be a Castelli brand, feels much better in the shoulders. So my shoulder mobility doesn't feel at all restricted compared to other brands I've had in the past where it's been a little bit more restricted. Um, and this only really matters for swimming, of course. And, and this is maybe why you see a lot of uh, pros and uh, high level athletes. Like if you ever watch, you know, Hawaii, they're always when they're coming out of the water, they they strip their skin suits off their off the tri suits, and they're always they have the tri suits pulled down so that they're putting on the top part of the tri suit as they're running into T one. So they don't want any shoulder restriction, even in their probably best in class suits. 
So on that point, what I find really interesting is it must be down to preference because Lauren Brandon is an athlete that we've worked with in the past and she actually wears, um, it's an own way suit, but uh, she will often wear that under a swim skin and have a sleeveless swim skin with a sleeved suit and she doesn't pull down the sleeves sure. or anything. So she's obviously doing pretty well in the swim because she's uh, <laughs> usually yes. the fastest swimmer, male or female. Um aside from maybe Lucy Charles, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's not restricting her, but it does come down to preference. So maybe her shoulders are built a little bit differently. Um, and she's got that comfort with the way her, her suit is fit, but that, that may not be true for everyone. So if it is something that you feel like you're being restricted in, um, then it might be worth pulling down and then just, uh, pulling it back up once you're in transition. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, let's talk a little bit about storage, Andrew. This is you put this on there, and I think it's a really important one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, folks will differ on their preferences of where to store stuff during a race. And uh, if you listen to our last episode, uh, Andrew, I think you were a pretty poo-pooish of storing stuff in your in the back of your tri kit. Is that right? Yeah, there's. it comes down to preference again uh, and a little bit for bike fit. Um, but if you have a very horizontal torso, um, if you put something in your back, it's going to disrupt the flow. So it's, it's very sensitive um, on the upper surface because you're trying to pull the flow down around your lower back. And the longer you can pull that down, the, the more you can reduce drag. Um, if you put anything in there that disrupts the flow, uh, it will separate at that point and it'll create a larger wake and more drag. So it's it's not not great to have a ton of stuff in there. However, um, if you do have, a, let's say, more relaxed bike fit or you don't have the flexibility that you can get your torso more in the horizontal position, you can probably get away with a few things stored there. But um, I would say there's probably better places to to store gels or things like that. And to be honest, and I don't know why they don't do this, but uh, the front is far less sensitive to disruptions. So why would you not have a gel pack on, on your front? Um, so, I mean, there's no pockets there, but why, why are there no pockets there is my question. Um, cause it's more accessible. Someone should make a suit with pockets in the front. I would, you know, keep your hands warm too mm-hmm. when you're, uh, when you're casually strolling around transition before the race. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like football players where <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think it's, um, yeah, not the best place to store items, but if you do need that extra storage, um, then it's, it's a valid place to put it. But, uh, yeah, it wouldn't be my first choice. And then same goes with those pockets on the side of the legs. I think those are one of the worst places that you could store any kind of gel because it widens your leg. It increases the frontal area. Um, I don't see them too often anymore, but when I do see them, I just have to shake my head because it's, you know, any benefits you might make from advanced materials, improving aerodynamics, you're going to lose from having that, that wider profile and increased frontal area. Yeah. But then when you get onto the run, then those pockets are become a little bit more, a little bit less egregious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I would put it down to the fact that if they were placed on the front of the leg or the back of the leg, they'd be far more beneficial. Um, I just don't know why they ended up on the side. Someone made a design choice and then other people followed. Well, the front would be tough with a tight hip angle. Like if you're already kind of impinging in the hip angle, putting anything in the front of the thigh might be a little bit awkward. But uh, no, I take your point about having them on the side stick out. It is it is kind of a silly choice. Mm-hmm. My thoughts on storage, certainly there are, I agree with Andrea 100%, that there are usually better places to stash the stuff that you need to stash uh, for a race. Now, when it comes to really long core stuff like Ironman and longer, 
sometimes you you just run out of places, um, and it depends very much on the frame that you're riding. Some frames, just you know, older frames or frames. For instance, my my frame is a perfect example. It's a uh, it's the Shiv uh, TT frame, so there's really no thought to any kind of storage or even hydration on that frame because it's not meant for long events, and I race long events in it with it rather. So for me, my my options are a little bit limited. Like even if I put a bento on top of the top tube, it still sticks out. It's not shielded by anything. So for me, and I also don't have that super flat back position. Um, I do use the the jersey pockets quite a bit. So in my um, personal experience, I do like to have ample room. And uh, again, like my most recent suit is the Castelli, and I'm a really big fan of how they've done pockets. Uh, again, not to say that other manufacturers don't do a good job, but that's the suit that I have quite a bit of experience with. They also do a nice thing where they um, the access to the pocket is from the side, which I find that doesn't restrict my access into the pocket, but the top part of the pocket that might flap in the wind uh, as it hit it is stitched to the back. So you still get the hump that Andrew was talking about that he's against for, for aerodynamic reasons, but at least you, know, you don't get a, a little top of pocket flap if it's full of stuff like a regular cycling jersey. Yeah. Yeah, that's another good point. And um, I'd, I'd actually mention that for the swim, if you're swimming without a swim skin or a wetsuit, um, having a either side pocket or a closure or a, a lip on top of the pocket that kind of seals it off so that it doesn't fill with water and parachute out, um, that would be beneficial. So right. I do see a lot of suits that don't have that. Um, but most people swim with either a swim skin or with a wetsuit. Um, and then I'd, I'd probably say that of the people who don't use one of those. They're not as concerned about time where the the difference of a, a pocket is not going to be a make or break for them. For sure. And that's that's a really important reminder for folks too. Like we're, the, the kind of things we're talking about now are, you know, I say, it's my pet phrase, firmly in the marginal gains ter- territory. It's not going to make or break a race for someone. So uh, if the choice comes down to, you know, having enough gels and maybe a few spares and definitely a few spares to get you through the bike, um, and then and putting them in your back pocket versus not packing enough nutrition because you you're trying to save that extra couple of watts off of the the airflow off the back. I think that the choice is very clear. Like you want to be able to feed yourself and have the supplies you need uh, for the bike rather than trying to shave that uh, that marginal gain. Yeah. So the priority would be finish first and then worry about the marginal gains. For sure. Yeah. Finish strong. So the other thing that we kind of touched on before is sun protection. Um, And this kind of goes, I would say, both in comfort and psychology for a race suit. Um, I've done some some races and having recently done Cozumel where it was uh, it was toasty and nice and bright sun all day right over top of you. Um, one of the big things that I would be worried about is getting a sunburn down the back. Even if you put on sunscreen coming out of the swim, um, it doesn't tend to absorb that well because you're already wet. Um, you're starting to sweat immediately after applying it. So that's a big risk in my books. So I'd rather just avoid that altogether and have the, the sleeved suit. Uh, but even then I have a, um, I don't know how to describe it, but there's a bunch of holes, like it's kind of a, a mesh kind of fabric, but there's small dots that I sometimes get on my back that are maybe one or two millimeters. But, uh, if I don't move my suit around enough, that sits in one spot on my skin and it will actually cause like not a burn, but just a little bit of a, a discoloration where you can see those, um, but yeah, aside from that, that's far better than having like a full burn over my shoulders and my arms and, and just being in complete agony after the race. 
Right. There, um, most manufacturers will publish SPF ratings for their fabrics, and those are good to pay attention to for sure, especially when choosing a long course suit where you will be out on the bike plus run for a very long period of time. There are also products, um, I forget what they're called, but uh, they're basically like sleeves and an upper back covering. I know Orca used to make one, um, which are essentially, you can use them for warmth or for sun protection. And that's that's something that would definitely be worthwhile for folks who are concerned about sun exposure on the bike and the run, which I think we should, we should all be. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of those. Um, that's going to drive me nuts now. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, yeah, some kind of coverage there. And if it's something that you prefer not to swim with, um, then you can pull that on after the swim and you can still get away with having a short sleeve suit if that's your preference. And that way, if it's not a sunny day, either you can make the call where you want to either use that or not use that. So it does give you a little bit of flexibility in your race plan. Yeah, and usually when it becomes the biggest factor is for longer races, like half Ironman, Ironman, and during those races, it's less, well, how long you take in transition is less of a factor. So putting on an extra piece of kit is not mm-hmm. as much of a time penalty as it would be in a, in a short course race. Want to talk about cooling, Andrew? Well, I was going to just wrap up the aerodynamics first. Okay, yeah, yeah. One thing that we could spend some time talking about, but I don't want to get into too much detail, is fabric texture. Because it's not particularly well understood, um, the impact of it is understood, but just how it interacts and how how to best design it, I would say is still kind of, an, it's not a mature science yet. So looking at the golf ball effect for aerodynamics, where you essentially force laminar flow to become turbulent, so where you're kind of stirring it up. Um, we, I think we discussed in a previous episode about how turbulent flow can actually be lower drag, but uh, it has to be carefully applied. Um, so generally it's higher drag, but if in the right places, it can be faster. So the texture can be used to control this flow, but as a cyclist, you're so dynamic and you're under such a range of speeds that it's very difficult to size these features and put them in appropriate places that will allow the flow to be fastest. So indoor cycling, that one's a lot easier because you're at a very, very narrow speed range uh, and there's not much difference in the yaw angles you're experiencing. But for a long course athlete, um, you could have a huge range of speeds you could have a whole bunch of yaw angles. Um, so it's it's a really difficult thing to try and control all of that. So maybe we'll touch on that in a later episode, but um, I just, I wanted to bring that up as uh, just kind of the wrap up for the aerodynamic discussion. Yeah, that's important because you see that uh, frequently fabrics are used on uh, claims of speed for a specific suit. They'll say, oh, our, we have the fastest fabrics of any speed suit and that's that's kind of the same as saying like our frame is the fastest if you're a bicycle frame manufacturer it's the fastest in a very very specific case scenario with a specific rider at a specific speed at a specific yaw angle in a specific aero position then it may be the fastest but then if that rider mm-hmm. you know sits up or oh, forget sitting up let, let's say that rider shifts a little bit or or they make a 90 degree turn and now it's not a headwind but a sidewind so your yaw angle goes from zero to i don't know depending on the speed of things maybe 10 degrees or 15 degrees if it's a strong wind or a slow rider then uh then yeah, then that's a completely different airflow situation and then their suit may not be the fastest. In fact, that texture fabric may be, as Andrew suggested, maybe slowing things down. And again, the the tailoring or the quality of the fit would probably, in my books, be more important for aerodynamics and the actual texture. So if you have something that doesn't fit properly, it doesn't matter what it's made of. Um, it, it could be you know the, the most expensive material, but it's not going to make you faster if it's flapping around. So make sure that you have something that fits properly first. 
Absolutely. So let's talk about cooling now. Uh, cooling is uh, probably our close second of in, in terms of favorite topic conversations on the show uh, yep. for a very, very clear reasons. I think we've uh, we've beaten that one to death as to why you need to be concerned about how cool you get. And uh, your clothing has a large role to play, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, uh, well, potentially significant restriction to the amount of heat transfer you can get, which is why some people prefer not to race in long sleeve suits. Um, so even on hotter races, I've always raced with a sleeved suit because of the sun. But I would say that it, you do get a slight restriction, but they're improving the materials in terms of their wicking abilities. So if you can spread out that little bit of sweat over the surface and you can evaporate it more efficiently, then you're in good shape in terms of cooling. So whether you have a long sleeve or not. Um, and for a lot of cases, the ability to wick the, the sweat and evaporate it better will outweigh the potential losses in terms of the, uh, the extra thermal resistance there. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is another reason why a suit should be tight fitting because exactly because of what Andrew just said. Mm -hmm. um, if you're relying on evaporative heat transfer for cooling, which mostly is what's happening in most conditions, unless it's incredibly humid, and even in those conditions, some of it is happening. The key for that process to be efficient is for your skin and the pores in your skin that are pumping out the, the sweat to be in con direct contact with that fabric. So if there's any kind of air gap between your skin and the fabric, what ends up happening is you sweat, that's what pools under the fabric, but it can't evaporate because there's a hot, there's a pocket of hot humid air between the skin and the fabric. And that is no good because then that sweat is not doing you any good. But if the fabric is right up against the skin and then it's through capillary action through that wicking process uh, or property, excuse me, of the fabric, the sweat is able to be lifted from the skin and pulled to the outside of the fabric where it inter interacts with the atmosphere and evaporates, that's when the cooling happens. So that only happens when there's a, a, a nice tight contact between um, uh, between your kit and your skin. And this is why it's so important that they're skin tight. Um, and this is w another reason, for instance, for when we're layering for colder uh, rides or runs, that the base layer, the thing that's next to your skin is tight. Even if you don't think it needs to be, this is the reason why it should be so that it's it can uh, transport sweat the most efficient way possible. I was trying to think of a good joke about looking cool in your race suit, but I came up short. So just use your imagination there. Oh. <laughs> you know, submit submit your your best dad jokes to us guys. All right, so uh, I guess uh, that kind of covers off. I think most of the things we wanted to talk about with race suits. Yeah, if there's any takeaways, that it's got to fit like a glove, and it's got to be comfortable and not flappy. And if you in and the chamois shouldn't hurt your butt. And if you've if you've got those those two things down, you're you're pretty much as good as it's going to get. Absolutely. So let's move on to maybe the next most important component, especially when it comes to comfort, but having properly fitting shoes. Agreed. So shoes are often overlooked and not having too much attention paid to them other than really what they look like. And so far, there's really not been a ton of uh, guidance for athletes in selecting shoes. I remember when I first started in the industry and I worked at a, a local uh, tri shop, the advice we were giving folks is to put your feet in the shoes, put your full weight on them, stand up, that is, kind of walk around and, make and lean on your toes and make sure your heels stay put and basically ask people if they felt like they were comfortable shoes. And that was pretty much the extent of finding the right shoe for you. 
Whereas these days, there's a lot more um, investigation that can take place. And I'll refer you back to the uh, the episode we did with Daniel about bike fit and uh, jabiamized, and they were talking about pressure mapping shoes. So that's that's the state of the art currently. But uh, most folks are still picking shoes on uh, a little bit of comfort, uh, but maybe mostly aesthetics. <laughs> well, isn't how you look the most important thing? That's the psychological advantage, Andrew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I will say um, there, there is a lot of good technology that's being applied to shoes now. Uh, with triathletes, I know having the ability to drain water, um, whether you're just coming out of the swim or whether you're sweating a lot during the bike, getting rid of that water is much better than having swampy feet. Uh, because if your feet are always moist, um, the skin softens and it can blister easily. And that's going to make your run miserable or the rest of your bike ride. And no one wants blisters. No one wants to be getting off their bike and taking their first step and feeling fire shooting through their foot. For sure. For sure. We should talk about the difference between road shoes and um, triathlon specific shoes. For most of our listeners, this is probably a fairly obvious distinction, but perhaps it isn't. So it's worth mentioning. Uh, road shoes and triathlon shoes are very similar in most respects. They're both considered road shoes in, the, in that they take a road cleat, which is for most road cleats, three bolt, unless you're wearing speed play. So they're meant for use with road pedals, which is excellent because it spreads out the pressure of the, the pedal stroke better than mountain bike pedals, for example. But the difference between road and tri-specific is ease of access, right? It's how quickly you can get your feet into and out of these shoes. And this is all about how quickly you can get through T1 and T2. So when looking at a lot of pros, you'll often see them, uh, they have their shoes mounted to their pedals and they'll hop on the bike, they'll start pedaling on top of the shoes and then slip their feet in. Um, I've seen amateurs try this and it ranges anywhere from looking awkward to actually crashing a bike. So um, practice it first. Don't let your first practice be in a race. But um, the the ability to slide your feet in there, um, it's it's very important. And I would say the longer your race the more you should focus on having a shoe that actually fits you properly. So more like a road shoe versus a quick transition shoe. So if you're doing a, a sprint race or a super sprint, then that transition where you save three or four seconds, that might be a big deal. But in an Ironman, um, even for the pros, three or four seconds isn't going to typically isn't going to lose a race. So, um, so I'd really recommend finding something that, that gives you the right comfort and the right uh, performance before focusing on that transition speed. Yeah, I generally agree. I think the the gains, again, are fairly marginal. The only thing that I will say, well, I have a, a couple of points. The first is that with practice, flying mounts and dismounts are actually not that scary. Uh, I've been doing them for years and I've coached them for the people that I see face-to-face who choose to try them. It certainly does take a little bit of faith, but it's also pretty cool. Like, you know, you're talking about, um, you're talking about psychological advantage. If you can pull off a good flying mount, flying dismount, that's, you know, the, that makes you look pretty serious <laughs> in the face of your competition. Um, and so there is a, you know, there is definitely a little bit of a, of a time advantage in just the, the mounting itself. If you are going to do it, as Andrew says, definitely practice it, uh, specifically practice getting your feet into the, into the shoes when you are pedaling and navigating and trying not to crash into other people. Uh, the advice I give is definitely get out of the congestion outside of T2 or T1, excuse me, before you try to put your feet in. So you pedaling with just your feet on top of your shoes for a little while, you can do a lot of work that way. I, uh, 
remember talking to Andrew York, who was a former ITU and Canadian mm. Olympian, and he would he was he would tell stories of how there would be races where he wouldn't get his shoes into his was, he wouldn't get his feet into his shoes for like two or three kilometers into a race because there was just never a good opportunity to take his eyes off his competition because that was all draft legal too. So, you know, be careful with doing that. Uh, know the race course as well if you're going to do it. Know when you can put your feet in. But most importantly, when you're coming back into T2, know when you're a little bit out so that you have time to remove your shoes because the worst thing is like being half out of a shoe and being at a dismount line because that's, <laughs> that's a recipe for disaster. Honestly, I think the biggest win of uh, having triathlon-specific shoes and doing flying mounts, flying dismounts, even if they're not really flying, is but having your shoes clipped into your bike and leaving them there when you when you hop off is the fact that you can run barefoot uh, through transition rather than run in your bike shoes. So this is two advantages. First of all, it's faster. Um, you know, if you've ever tried to run in bike shoes, it's not the most fun thing in the world. Um, it's less dangerous in my opinion, because, uh, sometimes you have wet conditions, slippery, uh, it's way, it's very easy to slip on a hard plastic cleat and carbon sole shoe than it would be in your bare feet or even socked feet. Um, and it's, it doesn't beat up your cleats as much. If you, if you're, you know, using speed plays and you're paying 50 bucks a pop for a pair of cleats, uh, running in them is the, is the sure way to shorten their lifespan so those are my kind of points in favor of running in bare feet and, and having your shoes clipped in and you really do need a triathlon shoe which you can enter and exit very easily if you're going to uh, be undertaking that so along these lines a quick tip i have for your your transition area is if you know it's going to be gravelly or sandy or a little bit of dirt or rocks on the, the run up to your transition zone um, just have a towel that you can wipe your feet on before you put your run shoes on. So that will get rid of any anything that you might pick up on the run on the way in. And like I've done that basically my entire race career and it's uh, I've seen other people not do that and then have issues with blisters. But um, for me, it seems like something obvious. Not everyone I've seen does that, but just at least to have it available so that if you need to clean off your feet, it's there. Right. Yeah, that's great advice. Let's also talk about the stiffness of shoes. So um, if anyone who's been buying shoes has been paying attention to uh, marketing claims, the manufacturers who make them will tell you that, you know, some shoes are stiffer than others. And it's usually the more expensive shoes that are the most stiff and they'll have some kind of arbitrary stiffness rating scale, which, you know, goes to 11. Um, and they they tell you that stiffer is, is better because they want you to buy their more expensive shoes. So where stiffness is definitely good in, is in the role it plays in improving force transfer from the muscles that generate the force, you know, in the upper leg and hip down to the pedal, which is where, you know, your intersection with the bike happens in the, in the drivetrain at least. And a stiffer shoe does improve power transfer. My question, and I've always been a little bit skeptical, is once you get fairly stiff, does making the, that sole that much more stiff improve power transfer by any kind of measurable amount? And I don't have the answer to that. I'm not going to say no, it doesn't. Um, but what I have anecdotally heard and what I've actually experienced myself is that with very stiff shoes, so kind of like the top end shoes on the market, I get uh, fo foot cramps. So my feet fatigue in them faster than they would in a slightly less stiff shoe. So I've ridden in kind of like the second tier shoes pretty much my whole cycling life and have been very happy. But every anytime I try a top end shoe, um, after about two to three hours, four hours, depending how hard I'm riding, I will almost always get foot cramps. And I don't really know what's going on. So this take this 
piece of information for what it is. But what I suspect is the fact that your foot has no ability to flex whatsoever in this ultra stiff uh, shoe, that it just fatigues from being in the same position for an extended period of time. But again, that's just my own uh, pet theory with no actual evidence behind it. So I got to do a little bit of research. But if also listeners, if you know the reason for this, or if you can uh, debunk it or support it, please do send me a note because I want to know about this more. Yeah, that's a really interesting discussion, actually. And I would say my opinion or my thought or initial reaction is that it comes down to compliance. So the way um, the way mechanical systems typically work is you have, if you're pushing two things against each other, one will typically be more compliant. Hmm. So if you think about laying down on a, on a bed versus a concrete surface, um, obviously concrete is not very compliant. So it's not going to move very much. It's your body that's going to be compliant, uh, which is why most people don't sleep on concrete <laughs> surfaces. But if you're laying on a bed, um, you're now, you have that extra compliance. Now the bed is kind of forming around, around your, um, your body, which spreads out the, the force over a larger area. So my suspicion, and I could be completely off on this, but my suspicion is that, um, that increased compliance gives you a little bit more comfort where if you're trying to push down, it might, uh, have small amounts of flex that help spread out the load on your foot um, and then redistribute it away from a few key pressure points that might be causing those cramps. Um, but that being said, you can also have multiple or like different levels of compliance. So if you look at beds, it's not that every bed is the same or every part of every bed is the same. You can have firm mattresses or soft mattresses or pillow tops that are soft for the first few centimeters and then get really firm afterwards. So there's there's a lot that can be done to, to fine tune all of that. But um, that's my gut feel is that what this is causing the, the cramping for you. Yeah. And look, it could be, again, it's a sample size of one or two for me for different shoes. It could be that the, the stiffer shoes just weren't the right shape for me and the right fit. So, you know, again, listeners really, I, I always caution folks to not listen to advice like this. We're like, well, for me, this is what, this is what it felt like. So don't listen to my, uh, my advice, but, uh, know that stiffer may not necessarily be better when it comes to shoes. That's, that's the point I'm really trying to make. The other big point that I'll bring up is if you're planning on racing in socks, test your shoes in socks and size them in socks. If you're planning on racing barefoot, test and size them based on barefoot and try and train barefoot as much as you can totally. uh, because you want to replicate those race conditions. You don't want to, it's, it's obvious advice, but don't do something new for a race. Um, and yeah, I've, I've gone down that path before because um, previously I used to race uh, barefoot and as I've moved to longer races, I've, I've gotten the socks a little bit more. But in that uh, early stage where I was racing barefoot, there were a few races that were quite cold. And I thought, oh, I'll just put socks on. But you put the socks on and that extra thickness in your shoes, the way you have, at least I had my shoes set up, um, it was like, it was really tight. So you get on there and now you're uncomfortable and the whole bike leg is just miserable because you're fighting this foot pain, which is the last thing you want to deal with when you're cold as well. Absolutely. Remember, comfort is fast, right, Andrew? Absolutely, yeah. And the psychology of it, too. Totally. Anything that distracts you from the, from the uh, execution on race day is something that if you can manage to avoid, you should avoid. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to the last topic of the day, and that is uh, bike fit. Um, and if you haven't already listened to it, please go back and listen to uh, our episode with Daniel Shada of 
uh, jabiamized. I still have to think about that word before I say it. <laughs> I notice the hesitation every time you say it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. What? Uh, so uh, that's where we really dove into uh, kind of the latest approach and the most uh, evidence-based approach to fitting bikes. And I, I mean, I almost kind of, I almost want to go back to doing more bike fits and, and using their system. That was the the very nitty gritty specific details. I think today what we want to do is talk about some high level takeaways about well, first of all, why bike fit's important, but also some things to think about that maybe you haven't been thinking about bike fit in the past. So I think the first point is comfort is fast. Once again, kind of our closing point from all the previous areas, but uh, you need to be comfortable on the bike, totally. um, especially if you're doing a longer race. Like if you're doing maybe a two or three K indoor pursuit race, you can cramp yourself into a pretty uncomfortable position, but that's for a really, really limited amount of time. But for most regular athletes, they're dealing with a minimum of like 20 K rides for a sprint triathlon or 40 K time trial or longer. So you need to be comfortable for those amounts of time. Right. And I think even going before comfort, just the, the case to have a professional bike fit, I think is a very, very strong one because depending on, uh, you know, who you go to, you can spend anywhere from a couple hundred bucks for a triathlon fit to probably around $500. If you're using some high level, uh, high level fitting equipment for a longer session, but if you compare the potential improvement in comfort and uh, real improvement in aerodynamic drag, that is, you're going to get way more out of that investment than you would out of, say, buying a set of wheels, which is probably the most expensive way to buy speed. So it's a very, very good cost-effective way to save yourself time on the bike course. Uh, and to make you more comfortable on the bike. So it's definitely a thing worth doing regardless of how you go about it. And I would add to that that just because someone has fancy equipment um, or just because someone doesn't have fancy equipment doesn't necessarily make them a good or a bad bike fitter. Totally. Um, so I would get personal references from other people or um, bike bike groups or tri groups, something like that, where there's someone that they recommend for a good bike fit because the personal references go a long way. I totally agree. So let's, let's talk about specifics. We, Andrew started talking about comfort being super important. And this is, I think, a good opportunity to talk about the how the conventional wisdom of lower is faster how that wisdom is not always correct in fact sometimes totally backwards yeah and we've been hearing that from multiple sources as well as i've i've noticed that through some of the my own virtual wind tunnel analysis uh, where sometimes you raise up an athlete and they don't become slower but they actually can generate more power so as a result, moving them up might uh, might make them faster. So it's it's not always cramming yourself into the most uncomfortable position means means you're faster. So you want to take a lot of these things into account. But again, it's very difficult to validate some of those things because the tools aren't necessarily available for everyone um, to make that uh, to make that correction to make that justification of your new position being faster. But if it is more comfortable, I would say that's generally a win. As Andrew said, it is without testing, it is difficult to find that sweet spot. But uh, what Daniel was talking about in the, in the episode that we did with him was that he looks for a balance of of stability 
comfort and aerodynamics that he assesses through very technical means, but there are also less technical means of, of being able to assess stability. For instance, watching yourself or your, your, your athlete fidget on the bike and slide in, in, on the saddle and watching for pelvic rock in certain positions, that is a way to assess stability, for instance. It's no, nowhere near as accurate as something that, uh, that Jabiamize is able to do, but it's still uh, a fairly reasonable starting point. And I would say a really interesting technique that uh, I'm just kind of thinking of right now would be if you set up your phone or you set up um, just kind of a, a small video camera on the front and on the sides to to record a time-lapse video of you doing a trainer ride or something, that would give you a really good idea of whether you fidget, whether you're stable, if you're rocking a lot. Um, so without doing the advanced uh, analysis that Daniel allows you to do, um, this would provide you a really good way of just doing that that first pass and seeing, hey, I, I look terrible on the bike, or I, I actually look like I'm pretty smooth. So it, it I would say that's a good initial feedback step for people. For sure. Uh, I totally agree. And generally speaking, the less movement that you have in your aero position, the better. And uh, speaking of aero position, the, f- the most important thing about it is that you're in it. Uh, and I know this is definitely one that Andrew and I have beaten <laughs> to death. So suffice to say, you're much, much faster in aero than out of aero. So when you're doing especially an indoor workout, uh, as Andrew suggested, that is the real torture test for your position. So if you can hold your position at even below race, target race power, because it is easier outside than it is inside um, for most people, if you can hold that position and you can hold it for long stretches of time fairly comfortably, not to say that you never take a break, but that you can you can get comfortable in it, that's a very good sign. That's a very good sign that you are, you know, 85, 90% of the way there. And that any kind of, you know, certainly any improvements in comfort would be a win. But if you were to try to, you know, improve aerodynamics from that position, you we would be getting better for sure, potentially, but it wouldn't be a huge gain versus just getting to the point where you can be truly comfortable in that aero position. That would be step one for for everybody that uh, that I would work with. And I can confirm that at this point in the year, um, not having raced recently and not having focused too much on it, I'm actually not in great shape for maintaining aero position. So, um, so this is something that I need to work on. And it's something that uh, once you make that realization, you can actually start to focus on. But the first step is it, it just realizing that, hey, I need to work on this. Yeah. And uh, one of the things to think about, too, is, uh, Andrew, you brought up a great point, which I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. When you haven't ridden arrow for a little while, it is natural to have it feel awkward. You know, most of us have put on a little bit of weight over the winter, or some of us maybe are a little bit detrained. Um, and so your body's not used to that position. So the best way to get back into it um, is to actually change the position, right? So if you know that you are racing at a certain front end stack height, and if you're uh, if your setup allows it, add 10 or 20 millimeters to that stack height. So make your front end taller, make your position a little bit more slack, and then start there. And then once you're comfortable in that position, then start working your way back down to where you were before, assuming that that your your race position from last year is where you want to end up. But it's, you don't need to be all or nothing. You don't need to be you know your fastest position from last year or sitting up. It's much better to ease your way into with a more slack position. 
Mm-hmm. And for indoor training, you can do something simple like stacking towels underneath your arm pads, and that will give you that little extra spacing and the comfort and maybe a little bit more padding as you're getting into things again. And you can work your way down. You can remove one or two towels every week or so until you get back to that position where you want to be. Totally. And uh, that's the that's certainly the low-tech solution. But if you have something like uh, one of the new uh, AeroBar systems, like you say like the TriRig Alpha 1 or the Cervelo system, where it's just a mono post adjusted with one bolt, then you don't have to, you don't have to get creative with towels. <laughs> you can always throw money at the solution. Always. Okay. So was there anything else from the bike fit perspective without diving into the details that you wanted to cover? No, I think that uh, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good summary. Mostly because Daniel just did such a good job of it uh, last when we spoke with him. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as what I wanted to give folks a takeaway of is find a position where you're really comfortable in arrow or where you can hold it. And then if you can improve on that position, that's great. I think it's a mistake to have an aspirational position and then contort yourself into it and be super uncomfortable and be unable to maintain it and potentially even injure yourself, which is, uh, you know, also possible for, you know, overuse. Usually it's um, lower back or hamstring stuff. Yeah. And injury, I mean, that's always going to make you slower. So you might spend so much time and effort getting your FTP up and then you injure yourself and that week or two you lose, um, you just can't recover, or at least not in time for your race. So pushing yourself too hard, which is uh, something that triathletes, I would say, are known to do, um, that that can be very dangerous and it can actually be very detrimental. I totally agree. Well, shall we touch on saddles? Sure, yes. Um, saddles were another topic that we talked a little bit about with Daniel, and I think he he went through it in, in great detail. So again, I just want to summarize uh, my thoughts on it. But saddles are probably the most difficult component to choose for an athlete, at least historically they have been, because the process has been trial and error. Basically, you would buy a saddle and you would try it. And then if it worked out, you would keep it. Uh, and if it didn't work out, you would bring it back to the shop and they would slap another saddle on your uh, on your bike. That was really, you know, you could make some very dubiously educated guesses as to what would work and what wouldn't work. But that was really the only the only way to do it. With new fitting processes and pressure mapping, uh, that process has no doubt improved. But it is vitally important to have the correct saddle because it is the the point in your anatomy where you're going to have the most sustained pressure applied to you by the bicycle than any other. And obviously with that in mind and the duration of some of the races that we're talking about, that is a real potential for uh, discomfort, pain, sores, uh, broken skin, that kind of uh, unhappiness. Uh, So uh, uh, the right saddle is a critically important piece of equipment, in my opinion. And I'd say this is probably an area that people aren't wanting to take a lot of long-term risks. So you don't want to risk nerve damage or numbness or anything like that. So Absolutely. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. Yeah, I don't think that's much of it. That's, it's a pretty pretty sturdy limb. Uh, and, <laughs> yes. Uh, certainly, if you're just if you're experiencing any kind of discomfort, uh, that any kind of numbness uh, in the genital area after riding in your race position for any kind of duration approaching your race time, that's a warning sign. That's either a warning sign that the saddle is wrong or that the fit is wrong. And it's one of those, uh, deciding whether or not it's the fit or the saddle is 
is tough to decouple because sometimes things can be addressed through fit and sometimes through both. But regardless, the problem needs to be addressed. It's not something that that should be ignored. And this is some, something I'm actually going through personally right now, um, where I had my bike fit changed recently. And I have noticed a little bit of numbness. So I think it's just because, as we were talking about saddles, um, they compress over time. The padding uh, will tend not to support you as well as it did at one point. So I'm actually going to be looking at getting one of the, the jibiomized, or Did I say that right? I don't know. I think you were close. <laughs> but uh, close enough. But uh, I'm going to be looking at getting one of their saddles. Um, the one I tried out previously when I had my fit done was the harder padding. Um, so I'm going to see if I can get one of the softer padding ones just to uh, to try and improve things because it's a little bit narrower than the ISM saddle I'm currently using, uh, which had worked quite well for me for a number of years, but uh, I think it's just wearing out. Um, and I've definitely gotten my time out of it. So I don't feel like that was a bad investment, but it's just time to to move on to something new and fresh. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. And in fact, it's funny that you say this because I'm in the exact same boat. I, uh, I rode ISM for probably five or six years now, and uh, I am still a retailer for them. And I do sell quite a few of them, but the one that I have personally, and I haven't, I haven't been able to find an ISM model that works for me lately for longer stuff. And so I'm also going to try the Jabiamai saddle. And it turns out, I did a little bit more research. It turns out that there is a dealer in Southern Ontario in Guelph, uh, Speed River Cycles. Now they don't have the full fit. They do pressure mapping of the saddle only, so they don't have the full uh, rig setup like I think Intrinsy does in Calgary. But uh, they do pressure mapping for saddles, which is uh, a cool service, and they do carry the saddles themselves. So um, I think my they're they're out too. I spoke with their proprietor, uh, but when they when they get them back in, I'm gonna drive down there and take a look and uh, put my butt on one of these saddles just to try <laughs> it out because just like you, I'm finding the ISM a little bit too wide now. Yeah, and. Maybe that's just both of us getting older, but uh, yeah, things change over time. Your body changes, yep. your physiology changes. So it's not it's not like you should expect the same bike fit to work for your entire riding career uh, or the same saddle to work for your entire riding career. So don't be afraid to make changes if you're not comfortable. Yep, that's exactly true. That's exactly true. I totally agree with that. All right. Well, I think that's most of most of what we wanted to cover. Um, is there anything that, uh, that you did want to add to this? Um, I think we're out of notes, so... <laughs> Yeah, we are out of notes. But it's funny that when we were prepping for this one, we had uh, a whole extra category of notes. And I thought that, you know what, if we if we breeze through the these uh, three things quickly enough, we can talk about uh, the next set of, uh, of items. And you told me there's no way we're going to get there. And it's, it's, you know, and almost an hour into the recording, and it looks like you were right about that. Breezing through is not in our nature. No, we don't breeze. <laughs> There's nothing else in my notes, but just to tease out what we're going to do next time we do one of these, we're going to go back to cycling components. We're going to cover aero bars, and then we're going to spend some time on a very important and often overlooked topic of tires and tire pressure. And then we're going to look at um, components that save on rolling, other rolling resistance uh, or frictional resistance rather, and that's the the bearings of the bicycle and specifically in the drivetrain. Uh, we've had a question come in from... Uh, one of our uh, steady listeners, Noir Naji, and I just want to cover this one real quick before we sign off. Uh, this was a follow-up to Andrew and I talking about wheel choice. And he asks, for his um, tri-bike with a 60-60 combination, so 60 millimeter front and rear, or uh, a 60-90, where 60 front, 90 rear. Of course, my kind of uh, knee-jerk answer was definitely go 60-90 because 
bigger is better in the uh, <laughs> for the rear wheel. <laughs> there's there's one very small caveat to this, and that is if you're going to use these wheels on a road bike as well as a tri bike, uh, some people may think it looks a little bit funny that you have different depth wheels on a road bike where it looks totally normal on a tri or uh, or time trial bike. So. The only case where I would say you may want to do 60-60 is if you're going to double duty those wheels, but otherwise 60-90 is going to be a slightly faster combination. What do you think, Andrew? Yep. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said there. So generally the rear wheel doesn't have that much impact on the amount of steering input you have to, to require basically to fight a crosswind. So it tends to be a lot more stable, whether you're running a 60 or a 90, um, even a disc. Not that a, a road bike with a disc would look very strange, but um, <laughs> it would. Yeah, but uh, you, you would probably be able to get away with that under most conditions. But um, yeah, it's it comes down to personal preference. If you're doing a lot of climbing, it saves a little bit of weight, but you have to be climbing a lot for it really to, to make a difference there. Agreed. Agreed. And Noir is only using it on a tri bike, so that's a moot point. Yeah, excellent question. Um, anything that you want to talk about, Andrew? I hear the uh, the flight trainer is back in stock. Uh, it is, yes. So we've we've got them um, at our warehouse that we're going to be shipping from. So uh, they're scheduled to arrive on Monday, but uh, we've opened up the the ordering system so that we can start to get those uh, orders prepared. And then as soon as the pallet arrives or the couple of pallets that are due to arrive, uh, we'll start shipping them out. So if you want to head over to our website, uh, you can place an order there. And that's foureyes.com. So f- the number four with iiii.com. Um, so you can pick up your, your new flight trainer. And that's the spiritual successor of the Halcyon, um, except we removed the wheel weights. So that's um, that's a big bonus for people. So anyone who had tried to install the Halcyon wheel weights or any of the other, especially the earlier ones, um, we often got angry, <laughs> angry emails. Um, <laughs> so we we took your advice and we did our best to uh, eliminate the, the wheel weights and make it much easier to get your bike on and off the trainer. So right now, um, it's a super simple process. You just really just screw in the um, uh, the rear skewer mount and then off you go. Um, so it's, it's really easy to come indoors after, you know, an outdoor ride and do a training session the next day when the weather might not be great. Um, so you don't have to worry about swapping over wheels or taking your chain off for a direct drive trainer, anything like that. So yeah. So head on over to our website and place your order. Cool. Yeah. I know that, uh, some of the folks that I work with, they've been eagerly awaiting the availability of these things after they were released. So it's happy to happy to hear that they're back in stock. Yeah. And it's been super frustrating because there's been a lot of interest, but we just haven't been able to keep up with demand. Um, so, I mean, good problem to have, but it's still, it's still frustrating for people. So we want to make sure that anyone who wants the trainer will have access to it. Yeah, I'm sure the uh, the coronavirus in in Asia has not helped your uh, your fulfillment issues. No, no. So we actually do our manufacturing in Taiwan. Um, so we've got a couple of our people who uh, who worked with us at Stack previously. Um, they're over there supervising manufacturing, and it's um, it's kind of an interesting setup we got because we own the the manufacturing facility. So um, a lot of people do contract manufacturing. We went the route of um, owning, fully owning. So it's, it's a part of our company. Oh, cool. Um, it's not, not outsourced or anything. So we have very good cr- control over the, the process. And because it's in Taiwan, everyone's moving out of China right now because of the political issues and the tariffs. And we actually ended up kind of one step ahead, uh, which was very uh, fortuitous, but it's, it's left us in a good position. And especially with coronavirus right now, it's, it's somewhere that we can actually ship from because most of the shipping has been halted from China. 
Mm, okay. Yeah. So you're in better shape than, uh, than some of the other, uh, uh, companies that I've been following who've, who are having all sorts of problems now. Yeah. And I would, I would assume that, um, the trainer manufacturing is a little bit different, but for the actual bike component manufacturing, the vast majority of it for any manufacturer is done in Taichung, which is where our plant is. Um, so all of the carbon fiber work is done there. So there's a ton of expertise. And I would say, even though a lot of people view it as being kind of an offshore manufacturing location, they probably have more experience and more expertise and more resources for carbon fiber than anywhere else in the world. So I wouldn't necessarily look at that as a bad thing. There's a lot of people who have opinions about offshore manufacturing. I don't think a lot of those opinions are valid, but um, some of them are justified to some extent. But um, I would say the quality has changed so much in the last five or 10 years that uh, it's really not a concern to buy something that's manufactured in, in China or Taiwan. Well, it's good to hear. Cool. So I think with that, we'll sign off. Uh, as always, thank you everyone for spending your last hour with us and uh, listening to us talk about all things cycling. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have specific questions about the show or anything that you want us to cover, do send us a note and we'll uh, we'll be happy to get that question in. And uh, do give us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us uh, spread the word. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.